Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Bay Curious listener Katie Joukowsky grew up in the laid-back beachside town of Pacifica. About a year ago, she was scrolling around on Facebook when a photo grabbed her attention. Well, they were black and white photos of large, I would say barn-like buildings. Um, like It looked like an army base of some sort. The photos were shared to a group for Pacifica locals. The buildings she saw looked sort of like dormitories, only they were surrounded by high fencing. Turns out she was looking at a place where Japanese people were incarcerated in Pacifica during the 1940s, at a place called Sharp Park Detention Center. I'm thinking, I didn't know anything about this. This is horrible. This was right in our town. Uh, You know, why didn't anybody tell us? I feel bad growing up there and having no clue. Places like Sharp Park are commonly known as internment camps, but internment describes the imprisonment of foreign nationals. Since many of the people held in the camps during World War II were American residents, we're using the more accurate term, concentration camp, throughout this episode. This week, we're setting out to learn more about the Sharp Park concentration camp in Pacifica, and we'll get to know some of the people who spent time there. I'm Olivia Allen Price. This is Bay Curious. Support for Bay Curious comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Committed to brewing things the right way since 1980, because when you're a family-run brewery, there's no other way to do it. Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Still family-owned, operated, and argued over. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of the show so you can play our monthly trivia game for a chance to win some cool prizes. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast. With an S. Thanks. KQED's Silicon Valley reporter Aditi Bandalamudi dug into the history of the concentration camp at Sharp Park, which, as it turns out, was a tall order. I didn't know anything about Sharp Park, so I drove down and checked out the spot for myself. I figured even though Katie didn't know about the park's history, maybe there was something written on a plaque or a sign nearby that other people could read. The park sits between the Pacific Ocean and the rolling hills of the coastal range. Back in the 1940s, the prison sat where an archery range now stands. It's all overgrown with trees and shrubs. 
I looked all over the property and couldn't find any clues about Sharp Park's history of mass incarceration. No old buildings, no commemorative plaques, nothing. Yeah, maybe the thing to do is to step back a little, because I think there are fundamentally two different uh, roundups of Japanese Americans, uh, and Sharp Park is definitely one part of that story that's different from kind of the better known part. That's Brian Nia, the content director for Densho, an online encyclopedia dedicated to the experiences of mass incarceration of people of Japanese ancestry across the country. So what happens basically is from the 1930s, like for a full decade before the outbreak of war, various government agencies, particularly the Office of Naval Intelligence, the FBI, begin to surveil the Japanese community. Since the early 1930s, Japan had been invading China, first with the Manchuria region in 1931, and then slowly extending its control to other regions in the country. The United States government was worried about what Japan would do next, so the FBI began to secretly investigate and keep tabs on every Japanese resident in the U.S. And so by the mid-30s, they've got lists of people that are refined as the 30s go on. A few months after Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, those lists were put to use by the government. President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, which allowed the U.S. military to start methodically forcing people of Japanese descent into detention centers. Meanwhile, the U.S. government encouraged paranoia and xenophobia. Japanese fishermen had every opportunity to watch the movement of our ships. Japanese farmers were living close to vital aircraft plants. So as a first step, all Japanese were required to move from critical areas such as these. In Northern California, some Japanese people were first sent en masse to Tanfaran, near the San Francisco airport. It was one of the largest so-called assembly centers in the state. Some people would spend time there before being transferred to more permanent prisons, like Tule Lake near the California-Oregon border, or Manzanar in the Owens Valley. But then there were camps like Sharp Park in Pacifica. The people sent there were specifically targeted by the government because the FBI considered them, quote, highly dangerous. But as Brian Nia says, they were really just community leaders. So it was Buddhist priests, it was Japanese language school teachers, newspaper editors like my grandfather, people who were, you know, officials at community organizations, whether cultural organizations, economic organizations. While reporting out the story, I got in touch with Kimiko Mar, who runs a nonprofit called Japanese American Memorial Pilgrimages, which creates many documentaries about this period of mass incarceration and the experiences people had at the camps. Her great grandfather, Tajiro Baba, and his son, Shigeru Baba, were held at Sharp Park before being transferred to larger prisons. They arrived at Sharp Park at 5 p.m., March 30th, 1942. Tajiro and Shigeru were strawberry farmers. Kamiko is still not sure why they were targeted by the FBI and sent to Sharp Park. The closest she's ever come to an answer are from records that say Tajiro once donated $2 to the Japanese military. According to her research, the men were picked up by police one day and separated from their families. They had no idea where they were going, how long they were going to be gone, what was going to happen to them. And so that's got to be really stressful to just be put places where you're like, I don't I don't know how long I'll be here. I don't know what's going to happen. The rest of her family, including her mother, who was just a baby at the time, were taken to Topaz Camp in Utah. 
Tajiru and Shigeru eventually joined them and were held there until the end of the war in 1945. Kimiko gets angry when she thinks about what her family had to go through. Even though they were Americans, so proud to be part of their adopted country, it wasn't enough. It's almost as if when you come here as an immigrant, you almost have to disavow your native country. Like, you can't be proud of your native country because that's being disloyal. When I first started digging into this story, I found it really difficult to get any first-hand accounts of what Sharp Park was like. That's partially because people weren't held at Sharp Park for very long. They were usually transferred to more permanent camps and reunited with their families rather quickly. But it's also hard because most of the people held at Sharp Park were older, more established members of Japanese-American society who aren't around anymore to share their stories. The only account I could find was from a set of diaries written by a man named Yamato Ichihashi. Yamato was about 16 years old when he immigrated from Japan to the United States on a student visa in 1894. There was a lot of racism, particularly towards Asian Americans in the Bay Area at the time. He attended Lowell High School, then Stanford, and finally Harvard, where he got his doctorate degree. He ultimately accepted a position at Stanford, teaching international relations and Japanese studies. Dr. Gordon Chang, a Stanford professor now, has spent a good part of his career studying the life of Yamato. He may have been the most esteemed, or certainly one of the most esteemed members of the Japanese American community nationally. He was a Stanford professor. According to Chang's research, Yamato thought of himself as an American, he even named his son Woodrow, after President Woodrow Wilson. And he often looked down on other Japanese Americans who didn't make as much money as him or held tight to their traditional values and culture. He considered himself certainly of the elite. Most of Yamato's friends were white professors at Stanford and other prestigious universities. When the war began, he publicly condemned the Japanese military for starting conflict and started purchasing $100 U.S. war bonds every month. Around May... Six months after Pearl Harbor, Yamato and his wife, Ki, started seeing signs all around the Stanford campus, instructing people of Japanese ancestry to report to a designated spot with only what they could carry. When they showed up, they were taken by bus to the Santa Anita racetrack, just outside of Los Angeles. They would spend the next three years living in concentration camps without freedom. After they were shuffled to different camps around the state, including the Tule Lake facility in Northern California, Yamato was told he alone would be transferred back to the Bay Area, to Sharp Park. I faced an unforgettable incident. An FBI agent named Robert Hart came to the room at 2.30 and told me that I was under arrest. I asked what was the charge, and he replied, no charge, as far as he knew. I was told to pack things I wanted to take with me, but I had no spare things with me. Yamato was separated from his wife and son for two months while he was at Sharp Park. According to his diaries, there were tall iron net fences that surrounded the camp and about 10 army barracks within it. I was pleasantly surprised at the makeup of this camp, particularly after my experience at the crowded Santa Anita Center. When I reached there, the flowers were in full bloom. The sight was delightful to the eye. Because Sharp Park specifically held Japanese Americans with supposed influence, the U.S. government wanted to treat them carefully, 
Again, here's Brian Nia. The U.S. government understood that the treatment of these men had bearing in how treatment of American prisoners in Japan would be treated. Each room housed eight people. Compare that with the barracks at the Santa Anita facility, which housed 10 to 12 people per room. Sharp Park held about 500 prisoners, compared to the thousands of people at other camps. Here's an excerpt from Yamato's diaries at the time. Treatment was satisfactory, food abundant, though often too greasy, and powerfully seasoned with garlic. Supplies were freely given, such as toothbrush and toothpaste. Sheets and pillowcase were changed every Monday. Blankets were clean. Yamato was held at Sharp Park from late August to late October 1942, before reuniting with his family at Tule Lake. Yamato had written his entire life, and Gordon Chang believes Yamato was writing these diaries partially to make sense of what was happening to him in a way he had always used to process the world. But it was maybe also to collect evidence of what he went through. And he accumulated a substantial portion, but this uh, this material became more spare as time went on, uh, less rich because he's sort of reduced to uh, just an attorney and no longer a scholar. Over the next three years Yamato was incarcerated, he grew more reclusive, more aloof. A camp director tasked with keeping eyes on him wrote that he was definitely well-respected by others in the camp because of his position as a scholar and university professor, but he was distant. Most people do not seem to know just how to take him, and he, in turn, having had little contact with Japanese during his 40 years at Stanford University, seems to have difficulty in relating to them and has a tendency to hold himself aloof. He appears to be an impersonal observer of the passing scene rather than a participant. Again, here's Chang. I think he, he, he very much felt this was a challenge to his dignity and his prestige, and he tried to carry himself, recreate sort of a, a world in which he was uh, highly regarded. But in a prison camp such as that, he's just a number. In 1945, when mass incarceration of people with Japanese ancestry finally ended and the Ichihashis were released, they weren't enthusiastic about returning back to the life they left behind. Anti-Japanese sentiments were still high. Leaving the camps felt dangerous. And they didn't have many resources to restart their lives. Yamato was a completely changed man. After he got out, he, he very much was, uh, I see, as a broken person, as, as many of the older Japanese Americans were. They just had a very, very tough time physically, mentally, emotionally. By the time Yamato returned to Stanford, the university was already looking for his replacement. Professional career had been crushed. He was no longer an active faculty member. His marriage had fallen apart. He was disaffected with his son. So to me, those are all indications he was in a very sad situation. The way Gordon sees it, the experience had lasting effects on the Ichihashis, as it did for most other Japanese Americans. There's this uh, long history in the United States of those from Asia being held as somehow, somehow perpetually foreign. Yamato worked so hard to assimilate to a country where white men held power. Attending the best universities in the country, getting the highest degrees, getting a prestigious job, having lots of white friends, and even naming his son after an American president. But it wasn't enough. The government still considered him a foreigner, a dangerous foreigner. And that classification 
destroyed him. A few years after the end of the war, the Sharp Park concentration camp was torn apart. Down came the iron fence, the barracks where Yamato slept, the dining area where he ate the garlicky food, the flowers he admired. We heard a rumor that stone steps from one of the buildings were still around, but when Adivi visited the park, she couldn't find them anywhere. Right now, there aren't any pushes from the local government or advocacy groups to recognize what happened in that park. And while local schools teach students about Japanese incarceration at Tanfran and other camps around the state, there isn't any specific mention of Sharp Park. That story was reported by Aditi Bandlamudi. She is a Silicon Valley reporter for KQED News. The Bay Curious team includes Katrina Schwartz, Brendan Willard, Sebastian Minubicelli, and me, Olivia Allen Price. Big thanks to Otis Taylor Jr. for his help on this episode. In a few weeks, we'll be putting together an Ask Me Anything episode about Bay Curious. So if there's anything you've wanted to know about the team behind the podcast or how we work, submit your questions at kqed.org slash baycurious. We're off next week for the 4th of July holiday, but check back for a new episode on July 14th. See you then. Hi, Bay Curious listeners. Are you ready to play May's trivia game? Every month, we read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org slash baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description. Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a cool prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. Okay, our question for the month is, the world's longest-running pillow fighting contest was held from 1966 to 2006 in what Bay Area town? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest, and I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.